0: Oh my gosh. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Sidewalk Small Talks, where we do history and talk about cities. So today we have a topic that leans more towards the history side rather than urbanism. But I'm so thrilled to introduce you all to my friend from college, Dharma Butt. So, Dharma, can you introduce yourself a little bit?
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me on here today. I feel very excited for this. And the topic that we're going to be discussing is a very interesting topic that uh, that was presented. But yeah, my name is Dharma. I am a current graduate student at George Mason University. Uh, I'm studying international security there. Um, I did my undergraduate degree from the same university that Evelyn went to. Uh, I studied psychology. Uh, first semester in grad program feels great. But yeah, that's I just love history and politics and all those things. So I'm um, I'm glad to be here today.
0: Great. So. Why international security? I know that you said you like history and politics, but like, why this niche?
1: Well, I think it's like, I've always had a passion for like military affairs and foreign policy since like middle school. Uh, I'm not sure why none of my relatives were in the military, neither my uncle, or my parents were. So it was a very, I, I, was, I was, it was, it was a very odd topic for me to be inclined to, given like you no know, family history with it, but I don't I don't know how I think it was in history class one day where I was like oh I love this this is you know I think we were talking about like the war of eighteen twelve because even mm-hmm. though Canada wasn't a country back then they still had a role in it and right. it just kind of developed my passion for there and then learning military strategy from like Napoleon Napoleonic era to the like, present day and that just kind of stuck with me and how that plays a factor in foreign policy uh, that kind of grew on to me and I believe that it also provide an excellent stepping stone towards finding employment, related really to like national security and things along those lines.
0: Great. Oh, wow. I feel like you're our future Pentagon worker. Um, <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Who knows? I we'll feel see. like I would see you one day at the Pentagon station. Yeah, hopefully. Um, yeah, right? <laughs> um, hopefully, WMATA would, you know, overcome their fiscal cliff. I heard that they're struggling right now. Um, yeah. 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 So you know they have to overcome it so we can see each other on the pentagon station (laughs) (laughs) yeah um so what are you enjoying the most right now um about your international security program
1: oh well that is a great question because there's a lot of things about the program that i just absolutely love and i think the main thing is the professors and the courses like they have a lot of different courses that they offer in a program that ranges from like studying specifically like international theory to like actual case studies, uh to Russian foreign policy, to biodefense and how like that plays a factor in international security. And they also have courses on terrorism too and human trafficking, which I found surprising. And the professors, even though it's only a program with about two hundred like students in the grad program, so it's relatively small, the professors Come up with a lot of real-world experience, whether it be in the research or in actual policy development. Uh, for example, some of them, at least half of them, either worked for the CIA at some point, which I was surprised they admitted to that. But I also found that they were transparent in that, so we can actually try and get these professors to be like, they get those courses that they were teaching, and a lot of them do also do work right now for the government, so they're able to give us some information that is unclassified, of course, but first-hand first 1st first first knowledge, too. And at least in our program, I get wonderful opportunities to meet with people from the intelligence community itself. Like, I attended an event that had a, the DIA director, the Lieutenant General mm-hmm. Scott Barrett, before, he the outgoing DIA director, but I was able to get a picture with him. He's a very knowledgeable guy. He spoke about Iran's drone prog- program and gave us some good information on that. Uh, I also got to meet with the former CA director, Michael Hayden, General Michael Hayden, um, who has a center named after him as well, the Michael V. Hayden Institute for National Security. Mm. And wow. just, yeah, which was surprising because those type of individuals you don't usually see on an everyday basis. So it was really wonderful to meet them. and of course just the opportunities that are around that area so even though I do go to George Mason it's close to the DC area so I can attend a lot of defense conferences and everything for free because student discount so just a lot of good networking opportunities are available with the academic side as well so that's what I love about it
0: yeah we all love some good adjunct faculty members they really yes create a different vibe in in class and provide a lot of information that's just outside of academia and so applicable to to the work that you know you do in the day-to-day okay so i'm gonna ask a question that's a little bit divisive in our trifecta so are you a dc person maryland person or virginia person now that you're living in western virginia i'm you know i'm trying to create a divide over here
1: Putting me in a tough spot here. Uh, I don't want to yep. upset any of the audience <laughs> members, but it seems that some, some people might get upset. But it is a very tough question, but a good question. So I did live in Maryland for most of my time in the United States. Uh, so that was from 2017 up until literally August of this year. Uh, I finished high school in Maryland. Uh, all of my friends are in Maryland. I finished college in Maryland. Um, but I feel like Virginia is growing on me just a little bit. I don't know, maybe it's that, like, suburban feeling or just being really close to D.C. Because when I was in Maryland, I lived in the Hagerstown area. So, like, mm. pretty rural, isolated, a lot of forestry, mountains. So I wouldn't be able to compare it directly. But, but with the Reston area, they have good public transportation, which is a must. Metro station is close by, about 1.5 miles away. The bus system is great, it's on time, it's efficient, there's multiple bus, bus routes that go nearby here, so I can take any bus to the metro, um, but Virginia is a pretty diverse state when it comes to, like, mm-hmm. the, it has a lot of natural wonders, like with the Shenandoah, the National Park, you got the Civil War battlefields, uh, all of these, like, places to visit, and I have yet to visit them, In Maryland have seen a lot of it, not so much in Virginia, but Got it. My heart is in Maryland because, again, my life is Yay. in Maryland for the most part. But, again, Virginia is growing on me a little bit. But for the most part, I prefer Maryland a little bit more.
0: Mm-hmm. Sounds like D.C. is not in <laughs> what, what you no. just said. Yeah. I,
1: I feel I personally, myself, I don't know about you, I wouldn't live in D.C. It's just I feel like it's too urban for me. Yeah. Uh, mm. It's always like the city lifestyle. I don't really like that. At least with Reston, it's like yeah, I'm close to the roadways and stuff, but it's a very quiet community. Say what Hagerstown area was quiet. I mean, when I lived on campus at UBC, it was relatively quiet. But mm-hmm. with DC, I I don't think so.
0: Got it. Got it. Um, well, I what about I you, love though? the vibe. Yeah, I actually like the DC vibe. Um, mm-hmm. okay. I I like walking on streets where you can just see cool monuments and like see the Capitol. Um. It's very picturesque in my opinion. And mm-hmm. I personally also love the vast amount of small museums that DC offers and most of them are free. So that's the perspective that I like about DC. But personally putting myself <laughs> on, a, on a tough spot, I would say um, I, I like Maryland more and that's not because yeah. of my, my Maryland pride, but like, um, you know, honestly speaking, I like Maryland because there is Baltimore. If that makes sense. Um, you know, yeah. sometimes people hate on Baltimore, but I like the historic charm of Baltimore. And that's um, his hidden
1: gems. See, yeah, I will say that.
0: Right, right, and you don't really see that in Northern Virginia. Um, mm-hmm. Although Northern Virginia is, you know, full of local history. Like Arlington is full of history, full of you know, Civil War history. Um, yeah. But um, I, I don't really see that, you know, being preserved. You you see a lot of you know tall buildings mm-hmm. in the Arlington area, which is great, but um that's not really something that i look for when it comes to you know ranking cities <laughs> so no that, that's I'm fair. definitely yeah, that's fair. biased yeah if <laughs> if you have like historic stuff and you kind of preserve that you know i rate it high um yeah. so yeah yeah well, all right that's fair that's fair yeah but to be honest though both maryland and virginia have a lot of civil war um battlefields yep. and i haven't yep. visited even all of them in the maryland side i visited only antietam which is the most That's, popular one
1: <laughs> yeah that, that is for the most part the most popular one because it's a very like turning point one because right. again a lot of history with it like i think the i remember the civil war general's name i think it was mcmillan or something mm-hmm. uh, he was in charge of the he was the guy in charge of the union army at the time but he was dismissed after the battle because even though they won they didn't he didn't chase the confederates out so mm-hmm. yeah
0: mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> that makes sense yeah, that's why I like the DMV in general. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. Yep. And actually, for today's topic, it's about <clears throat> a very DMV thing, but it's more specifically on Embassy Road in DC. So, um, we named this episode's title like the Embassy Role Assassination Story. Um, and we're looking at something really intense, in my own opinion, that I get. Guess- So I like, I'm still so surprised by the fact that nobody remembers this event. So apparently what we're going to talk about is the Latelier assassination. Um, Originally, when I was like doing my planning, I put Embassy Row on my list just because, you know, the cool architectures. And I thought, you know, there's something like I can learn about Embassy Row. But I never thought of learning about an assassination and learning about a foreign-sponsored foreign state-sponsored assassination on Sheridan Circle which is like literally the (laughs) roundabout that I always pass through when I leave work when I was still working in DC so um yeah I guess the fact that you know DC is so quietly international always just surprises me and like the fact that um we have all these really cool like you know foreign relation important people like living so concentrated in DC makes this story even more significant all right, so um, a little bit about the Latelier Mofet assassination. Um, a George Washington University blog post, I forgot which center it was, probably the National Security Archive Center that they posted so. a yeah. blog post. It says, like, um, about the Latelier Mofit assassination that after all, until 9-11, it is the only post-war foreign-sponsored foreign sponsor terrorist attack on the U.S. soil. And I find it, uh, r- like... I don't know. It's heavy—a right word to like describe it. Like you know, it's a heavy piece of history. You know, of, yeah. of this area, right? Like it's <laughs> literally a terrorist attack. As like American um, citizen was dead as a result of it. <laughs> so, um, to give us a little bit of background, um, this assassination has a lot to do with U.S. and Chile relations, and it took place in 1976. So it's like the height of Cold War. So Dharma, can you tell us a little bit about? Um, what was going on between the U.S. and Chile and like their relations during the 70s and the 80s?
1: Yeah, for sure. So as I just mentioned, this was during the height of the Cold War um, with, with the two competing superpowers, the United States and Soviet Union, competing with each other, both for ideology and influence around the world. Um, again, a bipolar world, capitalism versus communism, big deal around that time. And for the most part, the Chilean-U.S. relations were pretty stable. They were friendly to each other. Uh, like the U.S. had a lot of influence in South American countries during that time. Um, and to understand U.S.-Chile relations more, it's, we have to go back a little bit further to understand why these actions occurred that we'll discuss later on regarding the assassinations. So one of the key objectives of the U.S. was to limit Soviet influence in various countries. Uh, started in 1947 with the Truman Doctrine, where President Truman pretty much declared that the U.S. would provide uh, political, military, and economic support to countries uh, to counter Soviet and communist influences. Uh, and this, in effect, continued on throughout the Cold War, the same doctrine from 1947, and it continued, uh, especially up to 1970 and after the Chilean presidential election. Um both the US and the Soviet Union poured resources to support their respective candidates that aligned with their views. Um, Salvador, who was uh, one of the individual from the Socialist Party, uh, actually won the election. He was backed by the Soviet Union and other communist states. Uh, his presidency didn't last long, only lasted, well, it did last about three years, so almost an entire term, until he was overthrown in a coup d'etat. It was US backed predominantly by the CIA. Uh, the military overthrew salvador on his government and replaced it with a military junta uh he was assassinated later on by i guess you could say in certain individuals but a lot of people just claimed that it was just plain murder because they weren't sure exactly who did it but the evidence pointed pointed to pinochet which we'll talk get into later on and his supporters so Pretty much the military junta consisted of people from, like, the different branches of the military. Uh, Pinochet was a prominent individual in that, and he declared himself president in 1974. Uh, and he pretty much consolidated all the power to himself by 1981. So, again, it was state-sponsored, uh, both Nixon, Nixon's administration and Carter's administration and Reagan's administration, Pinochet and his government, uh, and under his government, they introduced free market enterprises which removed tariff protections. So a lot of U.S. companies liked that as well and the U.S. government liked it. But that's kind of the backdrop to like the U.S.-Chile relationship in the 70s and 80s. It was relatively friendly despite numerous human rights violations and other uh, silencing of the opposition even that occurred. Yeah,
0: Sounds great. So quick recap. Basically, U.S.-Chile had a pretty decent cordial relations yeah. but what was happening was that there's an election in 70 where this soviet-backed um salvador allende he got elected right and then in 73 with a coup supported by the u.s cia um pinochet got himself enthroned if that makes sense yeah and that's basically where the dictatorship began right then
1: mm-hmm. that, that sums right. up perfectly
0: great great so okay back to the assassination so there were two people killed on september 23rd 1976 in sheridan circle washington dc and so these two folks one of them called orlando latelier and the other called ronnie moffitt so orlando latelier hereafter latelier um he was the former foreign ambassador to the U.S. from Chile um, under Salvador Allende, right? Mm -hmm. And then Ronnie Moffitt was basically the staff worker um, of Latelier. Well, basically, they they work in the same company. like They work at the same think tank um, called the IPS, also in DuPont Circle, D.C. And funny enough, I did a little bit digging and learned that this IPS think tank was founded by Jamie Raskin's father so Jamie Raskin's father was at the memorial of um L'Atelier. he basically officiated the entire thing and so Maryland time you know like Maryland yep. time um yeah that was crazy but anyways so what happened was like on this morning when Latillier when was driving from Bethesda where he lived to work in Dupont Circle um on Sheridan Circle There is a bomb that was placed under um, his seat, just got exploded um, by two, I think it's Cuban, yeah, by two Cuban folks. But like the entire setup of the bomb was kind of um, organized by a Chilean-American named Michael Townley, I believe. Yes, And he received this assignment by the Dina, which is the secret police um, back in the days of Pinochet. Okay, cool. There's a lot of information. So, yeah. basically, Latilier was someone who got exiled from Chile after Pinochet's coup, and which is why he's in D.C. working um, at IPS, which is a think tank that's very progressive, um, I think, at the time and also right now as well. Um, yeah. And the assassination was basically planned by Pinochet. And um, it carried out successfully, unfortunately. Um... So yeah. Him he 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 was dead. He yeah. or, or <laughs> I said it so horribly. So he died as a result of that. Um but also Ronnie Moffitt who was also like victimized in the event was this um staff member that Latilier picked up in the morning just to you know give her and her husband a ride to work. Um she unfortunately lost her life as well. But um I think her husband Michael Moffitt was very lucky to have survived because he sat at the back seat. So he just got injured. Um, and like during my dig with um, the Raskin family, um, I remember there's this one clip where Jamie Raskin was like, I was a middle school boy that day and I just got a phone call from someone um, who told me that um, wait, did he say he got a phone call? But something, you know, somebody informed him about this whole assassination thing. And at that very night, he basically followed his father and met with Michael Moffat. And he just saw Michael Moffat, like, weeping, crying, and, like, everybody at IPS, like, you know, taking in the burden some or, like, you know, the the heavy emotions that took place as a result of the assassination. So, you know, another Maryland thing. Um, Yeah. Um, (laughs) So.
1: Love it. Yeah, <laughs>
0: I'm not sure if I should, you know, like that. <laughs> but anyways, um, briefly after the assassination, there are more than 2,000 folks attending the funeral and the memorial service. Um, I think both of them can, you know, can be used interchangeably. Yeah. And so more than 2,000 folks appeared. And a lot of these folks were actually, you know, South American exiles who find political refuge in the U.S., And um, I remember there is a quote from probably the Evening Star, which is the local newspaper for DC at the time, um, that says the crowd represented a large explicit community here and some who have suffered through the same kind of repression. And so um, the death of Latilia really kind of ignited, I think, a strong reaction to, I guess, the extension of dictatorship into, you know, the US, if that makes sense, like a lot of folks start to be scared or like be fearful about their, their personal safety, despite being already in US soil um, after what has happened. So um, my question for you, Dharma, is really why, why did Pinochet, you know, have this audacity to do such horrendous things like was his relations with the u.s like so well that he doesn't even care or what was going on like why would he have you know the audacity to do such things
1: yeah uh that's that's a very excellent question actually because again a very horrendous thing you an innocent american civilian was killed and kind of got away with it too which was very unfortunate but again, a lot of this stems back to the fact that we were in the height of the Cold War as well, and how far sometimes governments will be willing to go to support another government if they have the same ideology. Uh, and so Penetra actually took advantage of that quite well. You had mass repressions of like the opposition, anyone on the left wing was either arrested and executed or sent in exile, and it's just a very unfortunate time in history because there were a lot of human rights violations as well. Um, and... This happened right before actually, which is really very unfortunate. But, and because of his outspoken criticism of Pinochet, as you mentioned, the Dina carried out the assassination attempt, assassination against him. And Pinochet kind of used, so during this time frame, there was an, an operation that was financed by the United States called Operation Condor, which again, US financed operation to support both Latin and South American governments in dealing with socialist and communist sympathizers. So there were other countries in that involved, Argentina was involved with that, Brazil was. So it was just a lot of these South American governments were taking advantage of this. And, and it was just, again, a very unfortunate time. And c- when Carter became president, he couldn't speak out against it because before we had all this knowledge that the CIA was involved with, the Dina and with Operation Condor, nobody knew what the CIA was doing during this time in the public because these documents became unclassified way later on. So Carter had to, if he denounced Pinochet, he was pretty much stating like, hey, the CIA was involved in this in some way, shape or form. And Carter couldn't handle that as well. Uh, and again, during the Cold War, Pinochet's government was a free market enterprise. It was a capitalist country and we just propped up this government, the last thing that you would want to do is denounce them and call them out for it, especially when they're your ally in the region. So that's one of the reasons why he could get away with it, which is very unfortunate. But even though you have all this evidence that, yeah, it's state-sponsored, there's not much you can do about it, given the time frame and everything that's going on.
0: Mm -hmm. So would that kind of be the reason why you know the memorialization of this event wasn't as big of a deal as 9-11 despite you know the scale is very different yep. i understand you know like 9-11 you actually got a lot of people who unfortunately lost their lives you know um you mm-hmm. got injured but still like something you know an assassination at this like national level that takes place like a mile away from the white house yep. but like nobody knows about it um mm-hmm. <laughs> you know safe to say because Honestly, like when I bring this um, assassination up to my peers um, in the past couple of days, nobody knows about no. it. And I don't even think um, anybody would kind of like realize that little memorial thing on Sheridan Circle because it's mm-hmm. so obscure. And, um, but but eventually I learned to appreciate, you know, the design of it, but but still I think your point really, you know, on, on the Cold War atmosphere and how the polarization and, you know, Party lining, if that makes sense, or like ideal Ide- lining. Line. Yeah. Yeah. Really plays an effect into why, you know, an event gets memorialized while the other does not. And mm-hmm. um, I wonder, though, if some similar assassination takes place today, um, is there any like international court that settles issues like that? Or is it really just up to, you know, US federal court?
1: So when it comes to foreign assassinations like this, it's a very complicated issue. So, but we, we do have a court system in place in the international community. It, we have two international courts. We have the International Court of Justice, which or the ICG, ICJ, which falls on the United Nations, and they mainly deal with treaty disputes and under international law. So like maritime law, for example, where like how far a country has jurisdiction over like the coastline and stuff, they, they manage that. And then you have the International Criminal Court or the ICC, and they do a lot of like the actual criminal cases, such as like crimes against humanity, genocide, war crimes, all of those things. Um, But if we were trying to, but when I was doing research on the ICC, they don't necessarily have a section on the criminal activities that involves assassinations. Like under crimes against humanity, for example, you have murder, you have slavery, you have all those things, but not assassinations, which I found interesting. Uh, you could you could possibly try to bring this to the ICJ instead, and like if two countries have an extradition treaty, for example, if they have that involves some way, shape, or form of like a political opposition member that you're trying to extradite or something, you could probably bring the case up to them. But the biggest flaw with these international court systems is that member states have to be willing to uh, uphold the court decisions. Uh, I'll use this one example, uh, Nicaragua and the United States. There was this one case where the United States backed rebels in that country, and they were brought to the ICJ because for arming a rebel group and all those things. But even though the United States was technically found guilty of that, it fought the, the United States used its veto power as a member of the United States Security Council. And despite you know treaties being violated and everything, the United States kind of it off like, no, we're just going to forget this ever happened and we'll, we'll go do it again or something. So that's the biggest thing. And with the ICC, it's very hard to extradite individuals to the Netherlands where they have the court system there. Like they've only done, I think, about one hundred and six, 186 cases out of decades of being a court system. And mainly they've only been able to go against individuals of like, War crimes like from Yugoslavia or Rwanda, for example. So it it's unfortunate that you cannot get assassinations under this because the United States would not be on board with that, and I don't think a lot of other countries will be either. But yeah, so even the core systems do exist. It's, I don't think you could possibly bring assassinations up to this to up to the core system. Wow. So yes, it will be locally decided. I guess.
0: Wow, so imagine if latilier because. Um, while I was, you know, doing research on this topic, um, apparently there's this historian called Alan McPherson. He wrote a book exactly on this assassination. I didn't read it because I just learned about it yesterday. <laughs> but it's called The Ghost of Sheridan Circle, and um, I watched some of his, um, I guess, interviews. And he talked, and he mentioned that the reason why eventually. Uh, Michael Townley, who is the Chilean American who planned the assassination and also two Cuban Americans or Mm -hmm. Cubans, Cubans got tried in federal court was really because the death um, that happened as a result of the assassination um, was related to an American citizen and a yep. former ambassador to the US. So imagine like L'Atelier wasn't a former ambassador to the US or Ronnie Moffat <laughs> wasn't in the whole scene. Like this might just be dismissed, if that makes sense, um, you know, in the entire justice system. So, I mean, I yeah. find it kind of, um, <laughs> I mean, it gives me- No, confusion. you're right about it. You're right about yeah. that. Yeah, it, It's it's kind of scary. Like it doesn't like, you know, the international justice system doesn't seem to include assassination which which is weird yeah
1: (laughs) yeah the the international system it's it depends I don't want to get too much into it because like it's all theory and everything but but I personally think we live like in a realist international system where it's like countries can do what they want to which they're not constrained by and the issues with these international organizations like the UN it's like all of its enforcement or like its jurisdiction depends on the cooperation of the member states. Mm. So if a member state doesn't cooperate, it can be very hard in dealing with them, whether it be like through an extradition treaty or just trying to pass a resolution. So it's it's a very it's a very interesting thing like the system we're working with right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm. I guess moving on to a more uh, a, a lighter <laughs> topic like. Let's kind of dive into the fact that, you know, D.C. is really a cosmopolitan. And the reason why I bring this up is I I remember um, when I was, you know, living here the first couple of years, um, there would be some folks like dc or dmv born and raised and be like oh wow dc is so international like you can see everything and like coming from hong kong like growing up having to learn english as a mandatory language <laughs> since you were three i was like no the us is uh, no, i mean like the dmv is not international like you guys don't even learn a foreign language until middle school like what do you mean by international but after five years of living here and seeing i guess the international significance or Kind of like foreign policy significance that dc plays i go wait dc is quietly international i'm like there are it a is, lot of is. these things that you know just normal people if you're not in the industry or if you're not in like working for government or the department of state like you just don't know about it and so yeah dc don't really come to my mind when it comes to like you know a cosmopolitan thing but i guess at the end of the day it's still the capital, right, of the US, which is always heavily involved in everything going on around in the world. So I wanted to see, like, what are your views or what are your thoughts on, you know, DC um, being a geographically significant um, city on US diplomacy?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, DC is very low key underrated when it comes to like, it's international aspect of it, because no, like you said, nobody thinks about it. But even though like Washington DC is like very small compared to like New York city or like Geneva, where like those places are like more internationally renowned. Like NYC is the financial capital of the world. Geneva is home to the United nations. Or like even London, for example, it's a very like international city, but Washington DC, like even though it's a capital, everything is like to understand its international significance. You have to like, as you mentioned, Either be in the industry or know people from that area, the locals. So I can definitely tell you more about it, but yeah, like DC is home to the United States government and non-government organizations that play a huge role in foreign policy. Like you got the you got the you got Congress, the Senate, and the House of representatives that are there. You have the executive branch; the president lives and works in DC over at the White House, and then you also got all these government agencies there, like Department of State, Department of Labor, and even across, like, not exactly in D.C., but across the Potomac in Fairfax, you have the CIA headquarters. Or in Arlington, you have the Department of Defense, but also play a huge role in the in the foreign policy world. And, and the embassies are located in D.C. right on Embassy Road, too. And there are some embassies not on Embassy Road. Like, for example, the Canadian Embassy is located right next to the Department of Labor. So, like, right across the road, adjacent to the Capitol building, which I found really interesting and unique for that. Um, but even though it's not like, you know, these size skyscrapers that are everywhere, or like United Nations isn't there, it, it's still, everything that goes on in DC has a role in some way, shape or form, what occurs everywhere else. Again, US foreign policy developed at these think tank institutions, there, cause they got a lot of those in DC and, it, and again, foreign policy doesn't necessarily have to be military it could be ed- uh, education it can be peacemaking it could even be healthcare. and all these specialized think tanks are in dc like at least 90 percent of them and they're not small ones they're large ones are world renowned that invite all these scholars from around the world and like with the with cses for example or the institute for war or the cato institute as well and these agencies or think tanks work with governments to make policy, and these policies, even though it's U.S.-focused, impact everywhere else around the world, because it could be about foreign aid, because the United States gives a lot of foreign aid, especially to the United Nations. So even though it's more of behind the scenes of what goes on internationally that's located in D.C., it still has a very profound role in what occurs everywhere else around the world.
0: Yeah, right. When you list out the different think tanks, you know, you reminded me of the World Bank, although it's not a think tank, but um I mm-hmm. think equally important as the United Nations, right? The World Bank also finance a lot of development related and infrastructure related yeah. programs for um countries that are applying for it. And what am I saying? Well, like like for Well no, country. you're right though. You're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah for, but what I was trying to get to is like um less developed countries if that makes yeah, sense yeah 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 um because most of those that apply for i guess um grants or support or like financing or loans um from the world bank or um cities um that are located in the global south if that makes sense mm, yeah. and it's also funny that like you know i don't know if you spent a lot of time around dupont circle but there's this one time i was at tate right and like sitting around me, were different people dressed so formally and like speaking in other languages. Hmm. And then I'm not trying to be nosy, but like you see how small the tables and like how packed Tate is. It's like whenever you try to stretch your neck or something and you glance over to somebody else's laptop and then you see like, you know, important stuff like written on it. Yeah, Hmm. like, and I was like, whoa, I can't imagine I'm sitting next to a person who works on this kind of project. And, you know, I feel like D.C. is, you know, like, it's Speaking very subtle. Yeah, it's yeah. very subtle. It's like where people actually make policy happens rather than under the spotlight, like New York, if that makes sense. Um, no. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. 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 Well, before we wrap, um, I kind of want to catch up on the justice part of this whole assassination. So what is so comes back to a full circle kind of vibe that... Um, existed um, within this assassination was that actually on this in this year in September the 23rd um, the Chilean president Gabriel Boric visited the memorial site um, of the assassination and um, he was the first Chilean president that actually visited this site and he gave a speech um, at an event dedicated to I think the 47th um, anniversary of this assassination, hmm. hosted by IPS, which was the think tank that hired Latelier and also um, Moffat. And like, you know, I mentioned before, Jamie Raskin, the Maryland representative to Congress, was there and he gave a speech and he was talking. It was really then that um, I learned about, you know, him, his father, and how his family was related to the IPS and the whole assassination. And um, what I find especially mind-blowing is that Latilia's son, Juan Pablo Latilia, who is now um, a Chilean senator, um, he works at the Chilean Senate, because um, I don't want to confuse that with you know you know Chilean person in the yeah. U.S. Senate, but he was like yeah. a senator at the Chilean se- Senate, and he went to a Montgomery County High School, which is called Walt Whitman High School, and like I literally have friends who go to that high school, and I was just like, oh my goodness, it's it's not even just D.C., Small
1: it's like world. Montgomery
0: County, like <laughs> yeah. and Local. yeah, right and. You know, before all the atrocities took place, this family lived in Bethesda, Maryland, and which is, like, not too far away from where I live. I was like, Just what? <laughs> I began to pay so much more atten- attention to, like, you know, those diplomat tags on, on cars around my area. Yep, I was yep. figuring out, oh, who-, who is this person? Like, you know, which embassy is he or she working for? Like, who is this important person? And honestly, like, the other day, I was at Costco and there is this whole diplomat family shopping at Costco and i'm just like really <laughs> <laughs> i thought you know diplomat kids or diplomat families you know live a better off life but um i don't know it's always it's always nice to you know be be economic and save your taxpayers money so i, gu- I guess that's a that's a good right? <laughs> thing <That's, laughs> right that's yeah. um, it
1: it it kind of reminds me of I, I just a little side story related to like, oh, like, you know, you go to Costco one day and then you see like these diplomatic family there or you had a restaurant and there's like somebody working from the embassy up behind you. But like down the road, I think about 20 minutes down the road, the, the exile uh, heir to the Iranian throne uh, lives like 20 minutes down the road from where I live. So it's like, that's crazy. It's like, because like, I remember when he, when he escaped Iran with his family back in like the 70s and 80s, He settled down in Northern Virginia. I didn't know where, but then I was reading up on him more, and it's like, 20 minutes down the road. I'm like, that's crazy. There is
0: no way. (laughs) Do you mind, like, exposing, like, the street name of it?
1: Uh, Okay, okay. I think it's on the Wikipedia page. It's on his Wikipedia page, so you could probably find it. But he probably has, like, security and everything. But I want to meet him. I want to try and get coffee with him one day. I think it will be cool.
0: Yeah, you should definitely try it. You you never know, like, what kind of friendship you would forge, you know, after... After, you know, an an outreach move, sending an email, yeah. making a phone call, you, you just never know. Like <laughs> definitely definitely gonna
1: try that. Definitely gonna try that.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. But also in the meantime, mm-hmm. um, circling back to the justice aspect mm-hmm. of it, um, the US Congress actually passed a resolution of apology to the coup that Nixon administration sponsored or financed or supported whatever way you wanna call All it. All the above. Yeah, and so I think Senator Bernie Sanders introduced this, or maybe, okay, correct me if I'm wrong because I think I'm wrong. So I think a senator does not introduce a bill, right? Or can they introduce? They can. It? They can. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I they think can. it's a. I think it's Sanders introduced it. I s- hmm. saw like this whole announcement on his website, um, that um, this resolution passed, and it actually passed this year in September, Ooh, I think. Okay um oh and, yeah i looked to
1: think so it's very recent yeah
0: yeah it was very recent and what what's even more i think exciting is not a good word but uh, what what is more you know it makes people feel better
1: feels proud is, that feels proud agno- acknowledging not, the just uh, injustice right is that right word, yeah
0: is that um this resolution is also requiring further disc- declassification you know of cia You know stuff that Mm. you know took place that you know that caused this whole assassination before during and after so it's really nice to see you know justice you know being avenged if that makes sense and but it's also kind of sad that it comes after 50 years yeah like when juan is literally an old person like i remember like the speech that he was giving (laughs) Um, at the memorial event, um, in September, he was like, "Yeah, I was going to Walt Whitman High School, and this one day I got um, pulled out of the classroom, and this principal or the dean told me about something happened to my father, and like, that was when he was a high schooler. And after fifty years, did justice come? But it's better mm-hmm. than it's late. You know, it's better late than ever. but yeah. it's also. I don't know. I have a lot of mixed feelings about this whole event. Yeah, it's a
1: it's a very touchy subject, but yeah, absolutely right on that.
0: Yeah, right. All right, one last note. Um, I really like the design of the memorial. I don't know if you have a chance to go see it in person, but um, if you Google search on um, the Latelier Moffat Memorial, it should show up on Google very easily that um, it's not you know decorate it on a high pedestal and you know it's like embedded on the ground yeah. where the explosion took place and i think it really really puts a star contrast um between this event and also um the sheridan statue that's like right next to it because you know for the longest time like the u.s always um built memorials or built statues to like honor war heroes and like you know kind of like honor Hmm. um, people which is great but um, it's also really nice to see that you know we got more and more memorials that are commemorating things that is not that great and you know making sure that people also know about it and i find it particularly that in dc when you see this kind of um atrocity memory related memorials are usually like foreign events like there is one that commemorates an ukrainian famine down near the union station area and versus the more celebratory like and honorific ones are for you know like war heroes i find this you know trend very interesting Yeah. but um yeah before before we actually wrap do you have anything you want to add
1: uh, really into this topic in particular? Or, I, well, I think what, like, you just mentioned about, like, how DC has, like, these, I guess you could say, commemorative things for, like, foreign events. I think it also ties back into, like, its internationality of DC. Like, even though it's not home to the UN or anything there's still like memorialized things of like events that happen around the world, which I find really touching. Like you have the Holocaust Museum, for example, or you have the memorial that's dedicated to the victims of the Ukrainian famine that happened in the Soviet Union, for example. And it's a very it's a very I think it's a very good thing that we are acknowledging these things that are happening around the world because everything stems again, everything stems back to the United States in which some way, shape or form and it just adds on to like the international aspect of DC, which I think is really, it's a very it's a very good thing in my opinion, I think.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I know that you've been writing a lot about international affairs in general. Where can we find your writings?
1: So there's two places. Uh, one, you can find it on my LinkedIn page because uh, I usually post like, whatever I write on oh. there as well. And as well as my website, it's Ith- isec.com. I, Sec Thoughts. it's a WordPress website. Um, I don't know if you could be linking that in the description of the podcast or anything, but if you're able to do that, that'd be great. If not, it's on my LinkedIn page. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, I post my articles on there as well. Uh, it's only a couple articles out there because I am busy at graduate school and everything, but when winter break comes around, I do hope to at least publish some more things on international security topics around the world, whether it be, you know, my opinion on things, on an analysis, It's that's what I usually
0: write about great that that sounds fantastic and i believe it should be able to link in the podcast description but even if not like i'll still link it in my instagram bio for this podcast so
1: appreciate it in (laughs) any
0: case yeah we can find your writings so dharma (laughs) thank you so much again for your time and hopping on chatting you know international security stuff with me and also digging deep into a foreign-sponsored assassination happening right inside of D.C. Um, I really appreciate our time talking together, and um, I wish you the best of luck with school and um, with your writing. So thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you once again for inviting me on here. It was great to talk about some underrated aspects of history that nobody again talks about, like the assassination that occurred on Embassy Row. Um, But yeah, I'm just thankful to be on here and to express my knowledge on this topic
0: yeah we're so happy to have you um so thank you all so much for tuning in and staying till this moment um if you like this episode go ahead and rate us a five star on what on wherever you get your podcast and also don't forget to stay tuned with the sidewalk small talks on instagram at sidewalk small talks and let us know your thoughts about this episode there or email us if you prefer which is also sidewalk small talks at gmail.com so i'll see you all or I guess I'll update you all until the next episode. All right. Have a good one.